welcome to Armchair Justice, the podcast where we take a shallow dive into the world of the Supreme Court. This is the legal podcast for people who didn't study Latin in college. I'm your host, James Zaldorf. I'm not a lawyer, but my co-host, Micah Chetta, is. Fortunately, John Gardner will be out for today. But while he is, we will be discussing DC versus Heller and your Second Amendment right. Before we begin, I just want to remind you that this is an educational podcast only. We are only offering our opinion and not legal advice. The individual facts of each case may differ dramatically and cannot be covered in a short form podcast. If you think something we say is relevant to your legal situation, you should seek the advice of a licensed attorney. With that out of the way, it is time to tell you our opinions, our full opinions, and nothing but our opinions. Mike Chetta. Uh, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, how's life? It's going good, James. It's good to be here with you. And uh, I really am excited about today. I think today is going to be a fun topic. There's a lot of interesting nuances that we get to dive into. So I'm excited. Yeah, I think I think today will be really great. Um, you know, of course, this week is going to be the uh, the election. And I would just like to suggest to any conservatives out there, if Tuesday doesn't go our way, just replay this lecture, this 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 this, uh, this podcast. It will be more cathartic and realize that hey, Donald J. Trump has put three Supreme Court justices who are highly qualified originalists on the court, so we're going to be okay. <laughs> we, our Second Amendment's okay, guys. We'll be good. Stop buying all the ammo please <laughs> oh goodness um so as we've already said a couple times here we're talking about the second amendment in uh the case dc versus heller uh dc versus heller arises of course out of the washington dc um which is a federal district and and of with a guy named heller who um was a police officer and wanted to get a firearm for his home, a, a handgun. The, the District of Columbia said that you had to have registered, yet all weapons had to be registered in order for you to own them, and then said uh, you can't register a handgun, thus making it illegal, expressly illegal, to uh, to own a firearm, a, a handgun. Um, they said that the chief of police can, in fact, grant you a one-year exemption to this rule, for which Heller did apply and was denied. Um, this court, this case, made its way through the courts. It finally arrived for the Supreme Court, and they asked two things. First of all, can the can DC regulate handguns like it does and say you can't have them? And the second thing also concerned other firearms. So there's a rule that said if you had another firearm uh, that was allowed to be in your home and was registered, like a shotgun or a rifle, uh, you had to keep it uh, locked and or, and or uh, dis- disassembled. So thus rendering it inoperable for your use. Um, and this centered kind of in the arguments a lot, and I'll just touch on this quickly because uh, one of the claims that Heller brought, in fact, the claim Heller brought was, hey, look, I'm using a handgun for self-defense, and uh, I can't just use my rifle because it's going to be locked. 
and I have I I don't have access to that in the moment when someone is standing in my doorway and I need to draw my weapon, I can't unlock the trigger. It would be too much. Um, so that gets to the Supreme Court and they ask those two questions to the justices. Uh, Micah, um, I want to bring you in here and just say, hey, and just for the question of why was those two issues really the issues raised and what was the um what were the arguments on the other side about the second amendment and and what it meant uh to us well james that's a there's a lot of issues on that one but um no it was interesting i know we both listened to the case and very fine lawyering by both sides and then the um united states also had a great uh, presentation as well. Um, it's really fascinating when you're listening to these guys speak before the court that they are being peppered by nine intelligent lawyers. I mean, most people would crumble under just one uh, lawyer questioning them, and these guys stand up to nine. And just really impressive job on their part. I think to really start to understand where this issue of this case comes on, we have to go to the Constitution. Uh, the Second Amendment presents the, you know, we are all familiar with it, but it's actually really interesting language with some complexity. So I'm going to read it real quick, and then we'll dive in. It goes with a prefatory clause that states, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, I don't know if a shiver just went down your back, James, but that last part, shall not be infringed. I mean, that's, I love that part. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, was, Mike, yeah, go Mike, for it. on that, like, it, for me, I read that, and I'm like, hey, that makes a lot of sense, right? Shall not be infringed. I have a right to have a gun. Uh, the right, are, you know, keep a bare arms. I can keep them. I can wear them. And the government can't do anything about that, right? Why in the world did this case get that far? Why didn't the, the district court just throw it out? Because it's obvious what the Second Amendment case. Of course, I'm coming from a conservative gun-owning background. So, you know, what's the other side side's opinion? Why would someone else read that? How could someone else read that? And it sound different than what I'm used to. Yeah, great question. You know, it's is always fascinating to me. I will come to a case that the Supreme Court decides and I'll read the majority opinion. And if it's something I agree with, I'll be like, yeah, that's absolutely right. Then I'll go to the dissent and they will present really good arguments generally that make me question my own position most of the time. And it's amazing. The arguments that are brought forward really do bring issues that we don't always consider. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about originalism and living document interpretation list and all those kind of concepts. And it does come to a head here because you're looking at historical context to interpret the second amendment and to go to what the dissent pointed out. Uh, well, actually, let me start with this. I'm, I'm going to uh, reveal the answer before we get into the uh, arguments. Uh, the court did make a holding in favor of Heller. And Heller basically 
is able to get his gun. He is able to get a registered firearm if he applies for a license. And the court made three specific holdings. And these holdings, to be clear, are the law. These are the only decisions that actually become law and that affect the rest of the federal court system and state court systems. The first holding was that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes, such as a self-defense within the home. So to break that down a little bit, it's individual right. If you read the amendment like we just read, there is no mention of individual right. There is only mention of the right of the people. And the dissent argued that the right of the people, that term, was not actually meaning the American people. It only meant that it was a subset of the American people specifically limited to individuals participating in the militia. And that's where some of the issues really start rolling around is where is the militia in this context of the Second Amendment? Because the first part of the Second Amendment talks about a regulated militia. Does that first part impact the second part where it says our, the right of uh, being able to bear arms, <clears throat> excuse me, shall not be infringed? There's, that's where some of the issues really apply. And then if we keep going on that uh, first holding, we see this aspect of self-defense. Now, if you look in there, you're not going to see in the Second Amendment the term self-defense. So are we assuming that right exists? Where, where are these concepts coming from? And it all really comes down to what's the history and what's the meaning behind the terms? Two more things, and then uh, we'll, uh, I'll, uh, we'll keep going from there. The two other holdings of the court was that um, the handgun ban and the trigger lock requirement violated the Second Amendment. So those two statutes by the uh, DC area were, are no longer applicable. And the last holding that they made um, is that the Second Amendment is not a right that is without limit. And that leads to another question. Okay, if, if the Second Amendment right is not without limit, um, then what is our, our method of figuring out what guns count and what guns don't? And that really comes to the question, which we talked about earlier, you know, can we all get tanks? Like, that's really all, honestly, that's why I come to talk about this stuff is when can I get my tank? When can I get my, you know, bazooka and all those fun, fun things. So, um, so on that question of, of when does a when does this right kick in? Where does it, what does it protect? Um, you know, this is the first case that really dealt with the second amendment uh and the second amendment right in the first case that actually talked about the second amendment since another case miller versus D miller versus united states, versus, v. Miller. united states united states v miller i get this um and and that was back in the the early 1900s but um what you know what bearing does does that miller case because i think this is very important for for people to understand just kind of like the the how that case how that case predicates this case and what the impact on that decision is right so to understand what miller is saying we have to understand whether or not the second amendment solely applies to a militia or if it applies to individuals in general so does it apply to the class of militia or does it apply to the people in general 
And what Miller addresses is the militia side. And what the dissent looks at is they say, see, the court talked only about the militia and they only dealt with the militia. So they didn't see the second amendment as applying to everybody. And Justice Scalia, who wrote the majority opinion, the, the court, the, basically the court's decision, emphasized that Miller had a very narrow holding. And, but before we get there, I want to tell a little bit about Miller because it's a fascinating case. Um, there was a, a statute passed, the National Firearms Act, and basically it prohibited various weapons and it also prevented individuals from taking guns across state lines. Well, two individuals took a sawed off shotgun across state lines, later were arrested and had participated in a bank robbery. And the individual Miller ended up ratting out his two Confederates um, of, over this bank robbery. And it was his specific case that he argued that the law not allowing him to carry his sawed off shotgun or rather, um, yeah, his sawed off shotgun across state lines violated the second amendment. Well, he didn't actually want to argue that case to the Supreme Court because he wanted to go into hiding after ratting out his Confederates. So at the lower level, the judge said, hey, I'm not going to have an opponent to argue this position. So I'm going to try to get it up to the Supreme Court and try to uh, fix the standard for the Second Amendment. Well, sadly, and kind of teaches you a lesson to be careful who you participate in a crime with, he, Miller was actually killed before the decision of the court came out in 1939. And so this gentleman who participated in this crime was killed before the decision came out. And his case has such an impact on, our on the court's decision here. And it's just ironic that those instances, those little situations where a person wasn't even there to actually make his case impacts 330 million Americans, right? It's just fascinating how law works and how cases make their way. But the key part of that case was that the Second Amendment protects only the ownership of military-type weapons appropriate for use of an organized militia. And when we talked about what's the limit, right? How do we decide what guns are allowed and what guns aren't allowed? The test that's used, which is the Miller test, is arms in common use and arms that could serve a militia purpose. Those are the two requirements. So for instance, if I have an AR-15, the question I would have to ask is, is it in common use? And secondly, is it sufficient for a militia purpose? And just, James, out of curiosity on my part, when you think of a militia, what comes to mind? I mean, for me, it's the Patriot, of course. Uh, but what comes to mind in, in your thought and what do you think most Americans think the militia is all about? First of all, The Patriot was a horribly historically inaccurate movie. Um, but it was about a, South Carolina and we're very proud of that. It's true. At least I am. Um, <laughs> so when I think of militia, I think like, you know, you hear fife and drum and, you know, these guys lining up and there's a bridge and they've got their musket shoulder to shoulder and ready to fire and, and, you know, red coats, marching, yelling orders. That's what I think of uh, when I think of militia. And you, know, you don't think about like a, a military, right? You think right. of Joe, Joe Farmer, my neighbor across the road yeah, I, without his rifle. Paul Revere's midnight ride, you know, 
uh, the, the, the British are coming. The British, you probably said the English are coming because we were all British, but you know, they're coming, they're coming, you know, Technicalities. let's, let's, let's get the, get, let's get the, uh, let's get out, get out your guns and maybe at Concord or whatever. Yeah. 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 No. And I think that's most of our perceptions and it goes to this idealized citizen soldier mentality, even all the way back to the concept of Rome, right? The Roman mm-hmm. citizen soldiers would go out, fight the enemy and come back and return to their farms. And that's really in our American concept. We wanted the citizen soldier for two reasons. One reason was that, you know, they, we didn't want a well-organized military. Mm-hmm. And second reason was that we wanted a check against uh, an abusive power. And one thing that the court brings out, Justice Scalia brings out, is that the Second Amendment cannot apply solely to a militia. It has to be talking about a bigger right. And that bigger right is the inherent right of self-defense. And one thing the court really talked about was an English Bill of Rights from, I believe it was, 1689. And the reason they talked about that Bill of Rights was it helps to define what our Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment specifically is emphasizing. And when that Bill of Rights came out and what the English were dealing with at that time was a a king who basically was taking away the weapons of the English gentry, and they weren't able to organize against the Stuarts and fight back against them over their uh, tyrannical actions and whatnot. And so when the founding fathers created our system and implemented the second amendment, they had that in mind and they wanted to prevent a king from being able to take away our firearms. As you a know, result, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was saying and that, you know, remember our, our history from Concord and um, Lexington. Uh, I said that backwards, which is why I had a, brain meltdown there Lexington Concord right what were the English going to do what was the 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 Redcoats the British army going to do they were going there to seize weapons not to disband a militia so I miss I guess that would also weigh into the idea of you know you can't you can't it's it's a lot more effective just to take the weapons and say thou shalt not form a militia because you know we don't like that yeah yeah yeah. no and it's you know so you have that historical context that Scalia is emphasizing. And then Scalia also points to several things. So he's building his case. And like you mentioned, Miller, the Miller case didn't do a deep dive analysis. And that's why Scalia says, no, we need to do a deep dive analysis in this case and see if the Second Amendment applies to a broader concept. And he ends up in in the court's opinion, the majority opinion, concluding that there is a broader concept. And the way he comes to that conclusion is, He looks at the history. He looks at state constitutions at that time. Uh, So for instance, many state constitutions at that time included a a right to uh, a a second amendment right. Some of them mirrored our second amendment exactly. Others of them were similar. Um, And then he also looks at legal scholars in that day, some of the more famous ones where they all came to a consensus for the most part and said, the Second Amendment is dealing more than just the militia. It's dealing with an individual right to self-defense. And we don't see that language in there, but we see a concept 
that our founding fathers wanted to uphold. And that's where you see in the in the dissent and the and in the oral arguments, this real uh, back and forth of what did these people mean? And what I love about it is this really shows how legal scholarship and the law and the constitutional interpretation should take place and how it should work. We should be looking at original documents. We should be looking at the intent. Um, but I want to ask you and talk with you a, a little bit about this, the aspect of, okay, so now we have an individual right to self-defense. Um, the court talks about there are some limitations, but do you think there's going to be basically any chaos as a result? I know one of the arguments was that, well, now that everyone can have guns, um, you know, how are we going to be able to handle all of what's in, what's out? Should we count bazookas? Should we not count bazookas? Do you think the American people are wanting to have a state government say, or a federal government say what type of guns count? Or do you think they can make those decisions for themselves? Um, you know, I think the, the federal, the state government and the federal government working together can, can decide some things, at least from my sense, from a policy standpoint, right? The federal government should say, hey, nuclear arms off limit. Like, I don't care if you convince the majority of your legislature that you can have a nuclear weapon. We just, no, that's a no-no, right? And so there's some arms that are so egregious, so powerful that we would only want, We would, I think it warrants a blanket statement. And then there might be other arms um, from, a, from a state level that that could be considered based on the individual characteristics of that state, um, but also taking that idea of the Miller test, right? What what is in common use? Um, what is available today? At least from my non-lawyer opinion, uh, back in the 1990s, the AR-15 wasn't a common weapon. Today, it's about you know I, I don't know the exact number, but I would say it's a, it could account easily account for a third of all gun sales. Uh, long arm sales. So it's definitely a common weapon. You know, you look at most people's cache uh, of weapons and if, if they're a gun enthusiast at some point, they have an AR-15 or an AK-47 or something that we would style an assault weapon. Um, and I think, you know, those types of things would, would count. And then you could also talk about the idea of of a freeding or a frighting, you know, is the weapon too scary? Does it make people nervous? That's something that uh, Justice Scalia liked to say, the word of fright or freet. Um, but, and I think states could say, where should you be allowed to carry your weapon? Where should you have it? Is there a compelling interest? Um, you know, for instance, we really don't want guns in schools. Uh, you know, especially young kids around weapons, they can get it, they don't understand it, they could, there could be a lot of harm, whatever that may case, I think states could have more say there. Yeah, and I think what you're getting at in general as well is, you know, there's some limitations here. The founding fathers weren't just saying, hey, you can give a six pounder uh, artillery gun in, in your front lawn and start firing it whenever you want. They had limitations that they thought of. However, those limitations were caveat with the understanding that we don't want so severe limitations that we're not able to push back against um, either a home invasion or a state invasion of rights. So either one. Did, did, they, did they have any regulations back then? Like, 
where do you, do you have some examples of the regulations they had? Yeah, so at the time? actually, I believe Justice Bry really pointed out in the oral arguments how in Massachusetts, in Boston specifically, one of the regulations was that you had to keep your gun and gunpowder uh, separate. And one of what would, that was dealing with was the issue of fires. You wanted to keep those separate in different parts of the house. And that was brought up as, well, this was a regulation. So therefore, if we can regulate that, then we can regulate, you know, maybe certain types of handguns. Well, the issue in DCV Heller was they weren't regulating, they were prohibiting entirely a whole class of guns. And that went against the, uh, you know, the intent of the Miller test, which is basically saying, no, you can use weapons that are in common use and handguns of all weapons are very common. But I, I'd like to just uh, point out one thing real quick. I think that's interesting. And that is, imagine if we didn't have a second amendment or imagine if the dissent won, right? If they won and they had a right that the second amendment actually only applies to the militia, it's not an individual right of self-defense, do you, I, I don't think we would be entirely lost. And James, I, I know, I know you, you like the constitution and I, I think you probably know this, but can you think of an area of the constitution where we could pull a right of self-defense out? Um, it's not explicit, but there's a amendment that says there's certain rights that are- the, uh, Yeah, the 10th amendment. Close. Or ninth. The Ninth Amendment, yeah. The Ninth Amendment, I get those two, yeah. No, no worries, no worries. Yeah, no, I think, and I hope I don't ever have to argue this one day, but it would be a fascinating argument. Um, if we do lose the Second Amendment, imagine we admit, uh, someone says, hey, you know, we're, we're going to cut it out, so we pass it. Uh, either the Supreme Court changes it later on, who knows. But the Ninth Amendment says there are certain rights that cannot be essentially taken away from the people. And just because they're not stated doesn't mean they, they don't exist. And out of the fundamental rights of all rights, what's the first right that comes to mind? The right to life. Right to life. And then the second right that comes to mind is to keep someone from taking that right that to life. life. Right. And that's the right to self-defense. And so the Ninth Amendment, which says you can't, just because we've enumerated rights doesn't mean we've, these are all of them. Uh, allows for a self-defense right. And the best way to defend yourself in today's world is with the use of a firearm. And, and, and thank God for the Ninth Amendment because, you know, if you thought that was just meant for the, the minor stuff, I would argue that, hey, the actual Bill of Rights was, was added to say, hey, here are rights that are in dispute and we're just settling the disputed rights right now. We are recognizing the right of free speech. We are recognizing the right of to, to bear arms, exercise religion, those types of things. We fought a war of this. There are still people in this nation who sided with the other, you know, with the British now, uh, who were Tories. And they said, hey, you know what? The fact that the government closed on your press, not a big deal. But I would argue there were other rights that that superseded that that even the government didn't did not at all question and those rights are to be protected those rights are like the right to property where in the where in the constitution outside of possibly 
the Fifth Amendment's uh, provision against seizure without compensation, right? Um, where does the government, where is that right given? Your individual right to own property. Surely they all knew, they all believed that everyone had a right to property. Um, yeah. Uh, the, and you can argue the right to self-defense is one of those rights. They just thought, hey, sh- this is undisputed. Right. This, to well, say that you think what's interesting on that point, James, is we often in constitutional law, especially with dealing with rights, we've often been going towards the due process clause and the equal protection clause. And that was one area in law school we really emphasized was the due process clause, the equal protection clause. Those are key things that we need to look at. And the Ninth Amendment, we didn't really touch. Um, now, the Ninth Amendment was, you know, mentioned whenever you want to introduce a new right, you point to the Ninth Amendment and say, hey, see, we can pull it out of the jar over here from the Ninth. Um, so, yeah, the, it's really interesting how, how we do our constitutional law and our rights and how we define them. Um, there are a couple of things that I think are really interesting on, on um, how, with basically how this discussion is char- characterized. And one way this discussion can be characterized, the dissent characterized it this way, is that we were basically pulling out a right that doesn't exist in the Second Amendment. And Justice Scalia, though, closes with, uh, emphasizes this point. I wanted to kind of get your take on it just from the general American perspective. He says, the Constitution leaves the District of Columbia a variety of tools for combating the problems of gun control, basically, or handguns and the violence at those calls. And he says, these include the absolute prohibition of handguns held in use for itself. However, this does not include the absolute prohibition of handguns. And then he closes with this part, that undoubtedly some think that the Second Amendment is outmoded in a society where our standing armies are the pride of our nation, where we have a well-trained police force, personal security, and where gun violence is a serious problem. That is debatable with dealing with those issues. But what is not debatable is that it is not the role of this court to pronounce the Second Amendment extinct. And as an American, when you hear basically Justice Scalia saying, there are a lot of policy issues, and that's for y'all to decide. But there are certain rights which are in our Constitution which don't allow for policymakers to decide. When Americans hear that kind of language, um, do you think that's kind of unique to them where they go, oh, wow, I, I haven't heard that? Or do you think this is language or concepts we get in everyday America? I don't feel like these types of concepts are coming out anymore. Yeah, I think with the uh, activism of the court and the quickness to run and bring fil- frivolous lawsuits, as, as Justice Scalia would say, um, you know, about should you have a, a you know, if you have a uh, Christmas celebration, can you use the word Christmas? Uh, can you have a manger? If you can, you have a manger as long as you also have a crash and a, you know, and, and a menorah and other symbols, uh, those types of things. Um, he would, he said those are frivolous. Those are take up the court's time. Um, I think today we think, the answer to every injustice is to go to the courts. If I feel like there is injustice in my life, I need to get it past the courts. 
But I think the founders wanted, if there's an injustice from my life, I need to go to the legislature. I need the legislature to adjust this and to fix it. I don't think they wanted us to head to the court. I don't yeah. think they wanted us to, to get, go there. Well, and at least you, the Supreme Court, and you're spot right. on. The legislature was assumed to be the strongest branch. I mean, you're absolutely yeah. right about that. And, and you, you mentioned due process. And, of course, we get due process um, to the, in the 14th Amendment. Um, uh, we get it in the 4th? 5th Amendment. 5th Amendment. My, you get it. You know, this is why I'm not a lawyer. Um, <laughs> fifth no Amendment. Worries. I get see the fifth, fourth and the fifth deal with criminal. Yeah, here's the, the thing. Here's the thing, though. The loopholes we, at least the legal constructs that we've created with the due process clause, confu- should com- it confuses yeah. any lawyer, I think, because a lot of it is legal fiction. Actually, all of it's legal fiction, and we're making some of this stuff up. Um, but yeah, no, so, understandable. So, so- that's confusing. So my point was with the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment said, hey, by the way, due process applies to the states, right? And we get this case two years after this is decided, because remember, District of Columbia, it's a federal district. And so there's this next natural question for the gun control side. They say, hey, um, we need to do damage control here. We want the court to say that what they were speaking about is a federal guarantee to your second amendment, but not a state guarantee. And we come up with McDonald versus Chicago. Uh, McDonald versus Chicago, the reason why McDonald's the first name is because McDonald lost and he's trying to get the, the Supreme Court to agree with him, right? So that's that can put it down. And McDonald's uh, and Chicago had a complete ban on handguns, much like DC. Uh, and McDonald's lawyers stand up and they say, hey, we have a second amendment claim. We think the second amendment applies to states. It's a through process court called incorporation. We won't get into all that. Yeah. And, and the court asked him quite repeatedly, why don't you just make this a 14th amendment claim? It seems to us that it'd be much easier if you said, oh, it's just due process of law, not a second amendment claim. And you know, his response here is not what I want to go after. But the court's answer to whether or not the Second Amendment, you know, applies because he brought that up as a Second Amendment issue, not a 14th Amendment issue, was the Second Amendment applies to the states. And we could get into a whole bunch of extra stuff about incorporation and how, you know, what laws, what rights apply and what rights don't apply. The answer is most of them do. You can rest assured. Uh, most of them do. The... Uh, so not all of them though. There's not all of them. No, not quite. But portions yes, of the right. six, I believe. Uh, uh, I, I don't remember all dealing that. with grand juries. Um, yeah, I think that one. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, um, so, yeah. so I was just going beyond this to wrap it all up. Here is to say, um, because of that case, you know, now it's not just your the federal government won't take your arms. Your state and local governments have no right to tell you uh, you to ban, outright ban wholesale, a category of arms that would commonly be in your, you know, that would pass the Miller test. Yeah. And I, you know, the, the holding in that case, or basically what the court said the law was in that case was the right to keep and bear arms for self-defense in one's home. And, you know, that's a very limited, narrow holding. It's very narrow, but 
it was really important as if you're a second amendment advocate for you to be able to get the court to say this is a right that is applicable to the states because now all 50 states cannot pass laws that infringe to that degree and i as we're closing i want to expand it out kind of come back we you know we dived a little bit there are so many nuances in this case and just listening to it i think one thing we have to come to the conclusion of is when you read the second amendment and you see the, the beginning clause and what's called the operative clause. And one thing Justice Scalia emphasized was that the prefatory clause doesn't narrow or limit the operative clause. And you're reading it and you're going, what's going on here? What are we doing? And what's happening there is all of these unique arguments. And we also saw, I know, the court really parsing through what does it mean to bear arms? What does it mean to keep arms? Is there a militaristic meaning behind it? What does we the people mean? And what the court was doing was trying to determine and come to a conclusion of what the founders were meaning, meaning with the Second Amendment. And I think one thing people don't remember or quickly forget is that they want their Supreme Court justices to interpret those sections to be what they want them to be. But there's another process called the amendment process that if they feel like they can convince the American people that their position is right, they can do an amendment process. And that's just one aspect of, of this closing. The second aspect I want to point out is that fundamental right to self-defense. That is the hook that Scalia pointed to. And he said, when you look at the operative clause, what is being emphasized and being basically assumed by the founding fathers is this individual right to self-defense. And what the dissent just basically did not like at all was that they were disregarding the text of the introductory part of that emphasis on the militia. And so what this all comes down to and what, you know, bringing it to the big broader picture is how you interpret sentences, how you interpret clauses, how you interpret all these things really do come back to what is the intent of the founders. And if we can ever get to this concept of what did our founders intend, it cuts against the grain of living interpretationalists who believe that the constitution can be interpreted however we want or for our day. And that's where you see this headbutting between Scalia and the liberal side of the court. Uh, but yeah, the McDonald's case was really crucial for applying it to the states. And I think for right now, your Second Amendment safe overall. Uh, is, and I know, James, um, we talked about the Miller test, and I think this is interesting. The Miller test, like I said, is common use and um, is it allowed for the militia? And that's where the questions are going to be, you know, if one day we get a laser gun, um, will that be considered used for the militia? Can we implement that? Uh, and I think there's going to be fascinating cases in the future uh, dealing with, uh, all right, what constitutes a right that we as citizens have to be able to uphold our militia-like duties? Um, so yeah, that's the, these are really neat issues, and there's going to be a lot more litigation in the future for sure on this issue. Thank you, Micah. It's been a, a lot of fun talking about this issue. I know um, both of us could go on for hours. Um, the document you sent me today was 5,556 words. 
Um, I did not write that much, but I have listened to probably um, five-ish hours of audio and video, um, including press conferences and people describing their their afterwards and. So All right, we, James, we, we get it. Issue. You prepped. You prepped. Prep, All right, we yeah. get it. <laughs> I'm a prepper. Um, I'm just um, I just want to, before we go here, I want to say, hey, next week, we have this really important case that we're going to be covering. Um, the court's back in session. First session with Amy Barrett as a justice. Justice Barrett. So excited to hear her, her questions from the court. It's going to be great. And one of the cases that they'll be hearing on Wednesday is, or the case they'll be hearing on Wednesday is, Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia. Uh, this case, Fulton is a foster parent associated with a Catholic charity. Um, and the city of Philadelphia said, if you have language, if you do not have, excuse me, if you do not have a statement um, publicly endorsing same-sex marriage, we will no longer send foster children to your foster care facility and Fulton and and uh, the Catholic charity um, of course does not have that statement and they allege that hey this is uh, first amendment discrimination uh, among other things you know hey we have a right to do this and you can't make us make a statement make us make a policy that's against our religion and they've been around for a hundred-ish years yeah, and now just on that point, you're really going to want to tune into this next week because this issue is quickly going to become uh, more frequently litigated on your radar. What I mean by that is it's going to impact your everyday life, depending on what church you go to, what thrift store you shop at, what uh, mm -hmm. school you participate in. Uh, there's so many issues that we're unaware of how religion and this discrimination, uh, anti-discrimination um, legislation that's coming about, how these two things are actually clashing and they're gonna have an impact in your world and they already are having impacts. And uh, it's, I, you really gotta wanna listen next yeah. week. That's all I'll say. It, it's Hopefully that's enough to uh, entice people to listen. Thank you, Micah, for that. This, of course, has been Armchair Justice. It's truly been a privilege to have you as a listener. Please, if you enjoy what you're hearing, can you subscribe or follow us on your platform of choice? Um, leave us a comment or a review. Those really help our ratings. Um, of course, Mike Chetta and John Connor, our co-host. John was out today. We really did miss him. John, we love you. Um, the intro and exit music you're listening to right now is Cats Searching for the Truth by Nat Keith and Hot Butter Rum. And of course, I'm James Zabler, your host. We'll see you next time.